Well, tonight brings us to the sixth commandment. Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. And the title then is Valuing Life. Valuing Life. You like, as so often with the commandments, there's a do not, but there is a positive do that is wrapped up with it, that you are shown, well, the worst, as it were, what uh, is entailed, but then the encouragement is hidden in there. And our Lord brings it out, doesn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount, the positive that we are to do. We saw last time under the fifth commandment, the place of family life and the importance God attaches to it. This is a building block of a functioning society. When family falls apart, then society will fall apart not long behind it. No matter how much government intervention, government goodwill, everything else cannot substitute for family life at its best. We know there's plenty of it at its worst. We know there are tragedies and breakups of families and death that takes perhaps a parent away, we might say, prematurely. But when family life and the fifth commandment are being held in high regard, then the worst excesses of the rest of the commandments do not surface, or at least don't surface so easily. And when a good example is given, then children are better equipped to respect the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, tenth commandments. Family breakdown is by no means benign, but it can be very destructive of character. And sadly, how many out-of-control children for whom these commandments mean nothing uh, are the result of that. So the sixth commandment, well, is placing before us the value of life, sure is. That you don't take life, you don't take another's life. Because we are what we are, made in the image of God. That puts a premium upon human beings, well above anything in the animal kingdom. Because we we of all God's creation are made in the image of God, made at the end of creation's last creative act on the sixth day of creation when he made us and breathed life into us and let us make man in our own image. So it was that the Father, Son and Holy Spirit agreed to do. Therefore, there's a dignity, and a value on human life that places us in, in a different category. And therefore, to take a human life is to show contempt to the maker of that person whose life has just been taken. There are circumstances in which we'll come to in a minute. Uh, sure, there's a place for the taking of human life by well, not another human being acting alone, but by the state, if you will. But the main point is the main point, that the killing of people, the taking of their life is a gross, gross offence to God who's given that life and in whose image that life is, a life that is full of responsiveness and capacity to love and capacity to know God. And when that is taken, taken without authorization, God is very, very displeased. It is to dismiss the value of another, dismiss them as of no value, their life of no value. But it's also to dismiss God so that his, as it were, possession and ownership of that life is also worth nothing. God is not to be feared, not to be thought of before the act of murder. And so God himself is dismissed. First heading then, following really on from that, extreme selfishness. It is the most extreme expression of utter selfishness. 
Because to think one is entitled or somehow authorized to take the life of another is to virtually assert that I'm God. I can make that decision, and I can make that decision about you, and I can remove you, dismiss you, kill you, finish you off, and that I have some authority to do it. At least that's somewhere within the head played out, the conscience maybe screaming no, require a lot of effort to keep it quiet and keep it still. But it is a remarkable statement of one's own self-importance, and one's own life, and whatever one feels this other person has done, or just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and just exerting some horrible power or control over the life of another, if you can feel entitled to take that person's life. It is, it's saying that I'm God, and there can be nothing worse that a human being can say than to say that. It's to say I'm too important, that your life compared to my life is of no importance, or your reputation compared to my reputation is of no importance. My life, my needs, my happiness overrides your life, your needs, and your happiness, or of anybody that's connected with you, of your family, your children, your parents, whoever it might be, your work colleagues, they count for nothing. And I count for everything, what I want to do now. And I want to remove you and leave you dead, dying. Well, there are some instances, aren't there, in the Bible of people murdering others. In fact, uh, a lot of them. Then right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Most dreadful murder right at the beginning. First children of our first parents, one became the victim of a horrible premeditated murder. The murderer Cain gets cast out and a mark upon him. And uh, there he is, then a wanderer, living well as best he can with his conscience. But there, right at the beginning of our history, a murder of a most horrible kind. One that was vengeance, one that was built around a sort of festering, horrible cruelty and enmity that Cain felt for his brother, because God had respected the person and the gifts of Abel, but not of Cain, because Abel obeyed God and Cain didn't. The result wasn't that Cain learnt from it. The Lord warned him that sin is crap, she got the door and he'll master you, but you must master it. But that doesn't happen. And instead, he himself takes away the life of his brother. Well, David and Uriah must stand out as the, one of the worst, worst murders that one could ever encounter. And here, the great king, who had everything, and yet who stole the wife of another man, Uriah, Bathsheba in that case, and committed adultery with her. And adultery led to her to conceive a child. And in order for David to try to conceal his adultery, perhaps somewhere in it, his mistress Bathsheba's adultery, tries to conceal it first by a bit of subterfuge and tries to fool Uriah, but can't because he's an upright man. And so in the end, has to have him killed. He's the one man who could say, or so David thought, the one man who could blow the whistle on his adultery. So that child is not mine. My wife has committed adultery. Who with? Well, people in the court knew that it was David. They could have spoken up, but Uriah was the man who would have been the witness that would have been listened to. So he had to go. David conspires, doesn't he, there to have the man killed in battle, to leave him exposed in a vulnerable place, withdraw other men, so guaranteed that this brave soldier would die in the battle. All to conceal 
David's adultery preserve his reputation, his hold upon power. Well, it's as old as the hills as stuff, isn't it? And so here he conspires to have a good man murdered. And we recoil, we're horrified when we read it. Of course, it takes Nathan the prophet to go and awaken David's sleeping conscience, send of God, and catches David in a wonderful, wonderful parable, uh, which David takes to be a real life story and walks straight into the trap. And of course, he is the man who in the story told is the wrongdoer. And uh, the vehemence of David's denunciation of that man, he should die. Well, he passed this sentence actually on himself. We see elsewhere, well, it is, there's Hazael who kills Ben-Hadad to assume the throne of Syria, having believed impossible that he could do such a thing. Elisha tells him that's what he's going to do, going to be the king, sure. That's how he's going to achieve it. He's horrified, or at least feigns he's horrified to think that he could stoop to such a thing to kill another man who's now the king presently to achieve his ambition. But he does. And we know how the Sanhedrin sat in the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all they were interested in was their status, the power that they had, even though it was really given to them on sufferance by the Romans, but it was good enough for them. And this rival, this one that the people listened to more than them and who had more truth to say, more of a handle on the word of God, more understanding of the ways of God, this competitor could not be suffered. And Pilate knew it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed him over to him. It was. That was their jealousy for their position and their status, which they thought was under threat. Since they were right, it was, and they were going to lose all their power and all their office some few years later, comparatively speaking, when Jerusalem was raised to the ground. But there is a murder constructed, orchestrated, Pilate manipulated into giving the verdict that they wanted him to give, piled the pressure on this weak man, secured it. Well, we see the Sanhedrin again, or at least a portion of them, trying to get the Apostle Paul killed and uh, looking to have him set up, as it were, to be ambushed and, and killed. They wanted, again, their peace and their privileges kept intact. They wanted not to have this man who, again, seemed to know the Bible better than them and had arguments that they could not refute, and so get rid of him. Well, then listen to him, let's get rid of him, and preserve our power and our status to keep our reputation intact. Well, we could add further to that list of murders that the Bible reports, or near murders that the Bible reports. And, well, we could add further ones from our own experience, their extreme selfishness. Well, it's the age to speak about these things, isn't it? There, an abortion in my body, I do what I like with it. Well, as Christians, don't we, we rather recoil from that. That's, that's a real life inside. It's a real, real baby that you're wanting actually to kill. And there are those who have thought better, actually, when they've had an ultrasound and just could not deny <laughs> that was a life. And have stood back and decided whatever the consequences and the difficulties to, to have the child. And uh, well, we honor people for doing that, that they've protected life. And we appreciate that and would, would applaud that. And the one read a very harrowing story of a young woman. And well, I had this sort of abortion there, but it was unmistakable. 
that that was a child, a real human being, and that she was part of the destruction of it. And over the complexities of it and the arguments one way or the other. But as Christians, we say, no, something's wrong here. And this does look like killing to us. And here we have perhaps an extreme selfishness that people want to preserve their, their lifestyle, their career. They want to be able to be well, whatever they want to be, promiscuous, is that the word? And so the child must go to preserve that, keep that all intact. And we wonder, don't we, a society that can tolerate such, uh, such destruction. So, so many hundreds of thousands of, of children every year that are lost. Well, we can see within it all, from all the different stories of life being taken, why the capacity for human beings to commit acts of cruelty, violence, and inflict harm on the helpless, why to take a horrible pleasure in hurting others. And one recoils from the stories that one hears. Cruelty to children. That's just beggar's belief, doesn't it? We have some dreadful cases during the lockdown of children, the way that their parents or one parent, whatever it was in the family, treated them. And the nation's been shocked. And that is the capacity for human beings to inflict such cruelty on those that they should have been the most keen to protect. And where every instinct you would have said was shouted, no, protect that child, keep that child safe. And yes, that was not there. And it was put to sleep and the conscience just couldn't function. Something more was happening. Cruelty to elderly people. Again, marvel. The capacity for children actually be so cruel to older people and to derive a pleasure that one just cannot comprehend from seeing elderly people suffer violence, suffer harm, suffer injury. And again, one marvels at that. And when the hardness of conscience uh, manages to legitimate it, justify it, well, then you have the making of a terrorist, don't you? Making of a terrorist, thinking that actually it's God's will to kill as many people as possible, that that is the route forward into paradise and certain religions there, however many virgins are all waiting for them that side of, 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 of death. Well, I think they're in for a shock. But that's when the capacity to be cruel capacity to override the instincts of care, love, and compassion, conscience, screaming, no, then gets settled into an attitude of, of absolute abandonment to committing murder, doing evil to one's neighbor. Genocide, similarly, when a particular group of people, we know from history this can happen only too easily, but a particular group of people can become an object and a valid object, they're told, people are told, well, you should hate these people, you should treat them in the way that you do, and escalating up from that, and we know that from Nazism, but we can look at Soviet Russia and any that differed from the party line um, to be sent off, if they get sent off anywhere, if they haven't been shot, before they got sent off or hung, and what dreadful things have been done in the history of humanity, because people believed that they're on the right side, that they're on the side of the angels were valid, legitimate in killing others and making particular groups especially to appear as non-people. Tribal wars, which have the same effect, not part of this tribe, so you're just not worth anything and you can therefore be just removed. Well, it's all a denial of 
what is God's prerogative? He gives life and take life. Though, I just mentioned this in passing, capital punishment for murderers, the Bible would say, is appropriate. Genesis chapter 9, repeated really in Romans chapter 13, the magistrate does not bear the sword in vain. And if you do evil, then you need to fear. And that is God placing before us how important he regards murder, taking of life, that he would allow the state under those circumstances and where there's great clarity and no doubt about the fact um, to have that person uh, punished by death itself. So extreme selfishness, well, it is. Selfishness doesn't seem to quite cover it, but that's what it is. It's an assertion of one's own right over another in a most fundamental way. And it can work on a sort of social level and groups within society or just on the individual level, the violence that is inflicted upon elderly people, upon women folk extraordinary levels of violence that men feel that they can or are entitled to inflict often in sexual acts of the most gross and horrible kind. So extreme selfishness, second heading, hate crimes, hate crimes. And that's where we came to, isn't it, in Matthew chapter 5. And our Lord speaking there really about hate crimes. Well, we hear a lot about those and the police seem to be as much concerned about that as they are about knife crime in London at the moment it was seen. But hate crimes are crimes. They're not necessarily the hate crimes that society says that they are. We do better to orient ourselves by the, the word of God. But it is what our Lord says, verse 21, Matthew 5, just to read that and the next verse again. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment, to which heads would be nodding. They would have been nodding at that. Oh, yes, we know that. Yes, that's very true. <laughs> they heard the next bit, not so comfortably. And it's our Lord, but I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. We see a term which had a particular kind of connotation that could get you into trouble with the authorities, you know, a sort of hate crime. But our Lord says, not just that, but whoever says, you fool. Shall be in danger of hellfire, not the council, or getting a reprimand or a reproof there, or a bit of conduct uh, disapproval or something put on your record. It's hellfire. That's very strong. It's saying that that's a sin, and it's working, as does all sin, to bring you into hellfire. And that saying, you fool, is not just a joking, jocular thing or something we might say to people when they've been foolish or when it comes to us to say that, it's got real intent. There's something behind it. It's very demeaning, very insulting, very belittling. But in that culture, you'd obviously pass as being okay to say it. And our Lord is saying it's not okay to say it because what's lying behind it, what the intention is in those words, what they are saying is to actually demean and belittle the person. Murder arises from the same source, actually, as hatred, or hatred arises from the same source as murder. That you're speaking of a person acting towards them as though they're worthless, that they have no dignity, no voice, and no rights, nothing to mitigate their behavior. You just speak in insulting ways to them, end of, no returns. And so this is, is something which our Lord here picks up. This is People being unpersoned, being depersonalized, losing 
their dignity and the place that they have as image bearers of the living and the true God. They cease to be three-dimensional people, people with needs, people perhaps who themselves had a bad day, people who themselves may be struggling with things, but that's gone. They instead just become objects that can be the subjects now of our judgments, and we rule them to be worthless, judge ourselves superior to them, them inferior to us, and that can lead to us despising them and belittling them, and just bearing prejudice and bigoted attitudes towards them. That's all part and parcel of hatred. Sometimes the hatred can be hot. It can be hot. Hot, the expression of it. And sometimes it's cold. It can be the worst for that. There's something premeditated, something cold about it, done in cold blood, as was really the murder of Abel by Cain. Vengeance can often be so calculated, so long in the manufacturing, years in the making, and then carried out in that way, some insult or worse that is spoken. And within that, within that, come, well, we've talked about it before, haven't we? Racism, sort of negativity toward other races, job lotting them all as this or all those people are like that. Or negativity toward particular nations. Oh, the people are always like this. Or people from there, they're all like that. Well, some of them might be. Paul doesn't have great things to say in Titus about the Cretans. But nevertheless, there would have been exceptions to that rule, which Paul would readily have conceded. There are national traits, and there are national traits, which sometimes the generalization does carry some force. But to just dismiss people as this, dismiss them as that, why, that is, that's a hate crime, dear friends, that's a hate crime. And when other people, disabled people, autistic people, are know, treated badly, wrongly, people that are physically weaker, suffering from some, what used to be called a handicap of one kind or another. Well, you notice in Leviticus chapter 19, which of course very much parallels the, the Ten Commandments and is a further kind of elaboration upon them, we had um, some things there which were said, and which were around the whole issue of, of not murdering. You heard about not stealing was in there, wasn't it? And not um, lying to your neighbour. But in, in such things of not putting a stumbling block before the blind or cursing the deaf. Well, the deaf person wouldn't have been able to hear it, would he? What sport? You know, some people think it is sport. Or for the blind to make them trip over. What a laugh. Well, school children can be pretty unkind there. Perhaps things are a bit better in schools these days, maybe than your day and my day, but there could be some pretty cruel stuff that was going around. Well, that's this hate, actually. And it comes from the same part of the sinful human heart that murder arises from. And that is saying something, isn't it? Very strong in that. And there are just various ways in which hate can be expressed or what amounts to hate is being expressed and people may not even think of it in those terms. Gossip, carrying negative comment about other people, where there's no context supplied, and it's just a measuring in on the, on the negatives, rather than seeing a three-dimensional person. Exaggerating faults in people. Conjecturing, without saying you're conjecturing, this is an opinion which may or may not be right. The evidence may or may not confirm that, but stating it as a fact, as though this was a fact, and then often people like that get challenged and, well, they have to concede they heard it from somebody else who heard it from somebody else. 
well, let's not be the person that even begins that, that kind of uh, hair chasing around, as it were. Allowing false information to circulate. That is, again, really a hate crime against a person, uh, taking away their dignity, allowing their, their position, their status to diminish. And when you know that thing to be a false thing, well, then there is uh, criminality attached to that by the word of God. Again, Leviticus chapter 19 uh, tells us of that. You do no injustice in judgment, verse 15. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. If you know he's innocent, she's innocent, and yet you, you take a stand against them, you purge yourself. Well, that's God would regard as breaking the sixth commandment. You've hated that person. You've, you've allowed their, their honor, their reputation to suffer, perhaps irreparable damage, right? Even have them sentenced to death and those kinds of things there. Grudges and the damage of that. And the Lord states, I am the Lord. You shall not, verse 18, Leviticus 19, not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So many ways in which this commandment applies to things that happen in everyday life, happen all around us and about us. Overgeneralizing. Again, if it's a bit like racism, you sort of overgeneralize and you bear a negativity toward a particular group. Overgeneralizing. Men always say this, women always do that. Well, some might, not all of them do. And overgeneralizing can be very wrong, very cruel, very, very inaccurate and demeaning, actually, to the people that you're overgeneralizing about. About Islam, well, we're careful what we say about Islam. There's plenty of plenty of negative things to say about Islam, but not about all Muslims, some of whom are very law-abiding and abhor the very things that we abhor, that some within their faith are practicing. Or various other ways in which we make out people to be all the same, when they're not, and there are people there who we should differentiate amongst and say, well, no, they, they don't do that and be willing to have more nuance in what we say. It's a way of critical race theory. I'm not going to go on about that for over long. There's plenty out there all about it. But where it purports to be looking at kind of racial actions and how basically our race, friends, white people, are really the problem everywhere all the time, and offers to put us right on a few things and that. And yet, that's racism. To assert white people this, white people that. Well, some white people certainly. And we as white people critiquing our own culture find much that we're very, very unhappy about within it. But then we find lots of people that are not like that at all. And to hear that we're all being called racists or we're all being called bigots or we're being called something else. Well, sorry, that is not true. And we don't have to sit quietly under those scriptures and think that somehow, somewhere, being a different colour, uh, gives you an insight into all white culture uh, and everything there is to say about it, being the judge, the jury, and the hangman. Well, usually to say such a thing is to say something's gone wrong here. And where that is being asserted against white culture, that others are sitting as the judge and the jury and the hangman, worrying about white fragility. That's what I'm suffering from, obviously, here that I'm talking about this. But we say, no, I'm sorry, it's just wrong. And it's actually quite racist and quite demeaning quite insulting to us as white people, not insulting to us all, and we'll call out the people there, we sure will, who are the bigots and the racists and the everything else that's in there. But we don't take all of this just quietly and lying down. 
And then when you see cancel culture, the kind of follow-up to that, that certain people should never be hurt and should have their freedom of expression taken away from them. And then we know we're in very dangerous, very dangerous territory where there is a fostering of a hatred, a fostering of an antagonism there, which can get very ugly. Mentioned some time back, a few months back, wasn't it, when the Israeli ambassador was invited to speak to a group at the London School of Economics. And, uh, well, she, her departure from that, some rather radical group had gotten onto it, and they were there to create trouble and uh, really try and uh, attack her and abuse her and everything else. Well, they picked the wrong person there. She was made of sterner stuff, but Israel. And the antagonism that is voiced against it, well, actually, it's just a thinly disguised anti-Semitism. Very ugly. And in the light of Europe's not-so-distant history, quite incomprehensible. So, hate crimes. And there are many, and there are sundry. Final heading, briefly. Human relationships are precious. They're precious in the eyes of God, and they should be precious in our eyes, that we value all people, value all people. And in that way, it's the death to prejudice, the death to envy, the death to bigotry, a death to a lot of things. Those things can die. <laughs> Those things most certainly. The Sixth Commandment does not say, no, don't let bigotry die, don't let prejudice die. No, it says put it to death. Put those things to death. They don't belong because those are simply forms of hatred and hatred is in the same family as murder. But that's not to say we shouldn't at times be actually pretty critical and, and quite negative about certain behaviours, people and their behaviours, particular groups and some of their behaviours. And when we have evidence to hand and we're able to read character rightly and have it borne out by the actual facts, well, then there is a place to be negative and a place to be critical, not just for the sake of it, but in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. In Veticus 19, verse 15, there is a time and there is a place where you have to say some pretty negative things about a neighbor's behavior and have to speak it in as best the tone one can without a kind of rancor and anger, a search for vengeance, overstating the case or falling into those kind of traps. But where we sometimes can be too trusting and just a little bit too gullible, and a little bit too ready to believe a story. You know, sometimes people can be up to all kinds of things there. We're right to be pretty critical, pretty negative. Sometimes we should speak up, should speak up more about wrongdoing and evil in the world. And sometimes we should complain more, well, just in a general sense, but complain very specifically about particular things, perhaps, that uh, governments are doing and actions that they are taking. We are to regard, though, human relationships as precious. And in a way, we're regarding them as precious even when we're becoming negative about behavior. We're looking actually for them to grow. We're looking for them to overcome their bad habit their way. We're looking to win people. It doesn't always work, but that's what we're aiming to do at our best. But we look to defend people's reputations. Look, if there's something wrong that's been said about them, to put it right. So that's not quite true, or that's, that's I don't quite agree with that. I was hearing somebody there, to my mind, wronging somebody else who is a pastor. I just don't hear that, and I wouldn't hear that. We put right injustices where we can. We feel injustices against fellow believers, particularly, but not just fellow believers, all people. And we pray, don't we? And, well, we know the Uyghurs are Muslims, and well, they probably have amongst them there a few hotheads who become terrorists. That we perhaps can't deny. 
But to see the treatment that they're being given by the Chinese authorities and the at times really unsavory way and then the West were trying to appease China and make what they do to the Uyghurs sound like nothing. I mean, there's Pakistan making out fellow Muslims there, but the president of Pakistan was at pains to say he didn't really think it was a problem with the Uyghurs. You can understand why he's saying that when you see the amount of money that's coming from China to Pakistan. So injustices, we bridle at them. We find them unpalatable. And for those against whom those injustices are committed, who are not getting a fair trial, who are being abused and being intimidated, well, we feel it. And we should feel it um, because their lives are precious. We don't take needless offence. Here's one, isn't it, just how relationships can become rather tense and strained and walking on eggshells because certain people, let it not be us, are easily offended. That we're quick to assert something back and maybe we're too proud or don't regulate our anger enough and a bit prickly and ill-humoured. And that just makes there for damage to relationships. And people can be hurt by the offence that somebody else has taken and the behaviour that they take when they are offended, which itself can become rather belittling and rather insulting, rather difficult. No, we check ourselves in that. We look for the best in people, don't we, as far as we can. We're looking for the best and trying to believe the best about people until compelled to think otherwise. And we're always prepared to rethink. In the light of further information, context, background, we're ready to rethink, ready to say, oh, I didn't quite get that right. I was too harsh there, I was too hard there, or I was too believing there, too gullible on that one. I've had to firm up on my view on that. We're always looking to rethink in the light of evidence, as far as we can, to objectively weigh it. And somewhere within it, well, it's there in Leviticus 19, isn't it? You shall love your neighbour as yourself. And think that that was just coined in the New Testament right there in Leviticus, right there amidst punishments and stonings that there had to be for certain behaviours, right there in the midst of it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. And as we read again and again, I am the Lord. That's, that's the authority behind that. That's the compelling notion that God has spoken it. This is God's word and God's character. And all that he is, is in his law. It's not just written a law that he's disinterested in, not like certain people uh, impose lots of rules and regulations on, on a nation and then seem to kind of not obey any of those rules when it comes to themselves. Now, this is God's law and he's in that law. He wants to see that law upheld because it's him actually. We need to have us love our neighbour as ourselves, valuing life. Well, that's to love people, isn't it? And so I've just got to read First Corinthians 13, a few verses from that. That's an epic, wonderful writing uh, where Paul holds up for us what love is. Love, not in a perfect world, but a fallen world. What it's going to require, if we're going to love, this is what it's going to require of us. It's what it's going to cost. So love suffers long, First Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own, not provoked, thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what you put in place of the desire to kill reputations or the desire to assert one's rights over and against them. We'll take a bit of First Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. There's a wonderful cure there. 
for breaking down of the, the sixth commandment and a host of other commandments. No selfishness here allowed, no offence taking, no rudeness, no intolerance, but the valuing of people. That's what was going wrong in Corinth. They weren't valuing people. There was such disregard. The rich were disregarding the poor and all kinds of ways in which relationships were breaking down. Total antithesis of the gospel. And here is First Corinthians 13. To lay alongside the positive things that we are to be and to do. Sure antidotes to anything that would take us into breaking the sixth commandment. Hurting other people. Doing harm. Hating. Well, here is an antidote to those things. Oh God help us. We're weak people. We're needy people. We need all of us to hear this and hear it again, don't we? And follow in this more excellent way that God gives to us.